Now we'll turn to the Scriptures, the Word of God. We'll be reading this morning from 1 John 3, verses 4 to 10. You can find that on page 1901 in the Pew Bible ahead of you. And as always, I really encourage you to read along. As is often my habit, I'll be reading through the passage and then going back through it by the verses, so you'll be able easier to keep track of where we are if you have it open and keep it open. But First John 3, verses 4 to 10, let's pray before we read that together. God, we come before your holy and perfect word, realizing that in this word we have great grace that you would speak to us, and that you would call us out of darkness and into the light as you are light, and your word shines light upon our path, leading us to you. So God, encourage our hearts, we pray, this morning by this word, in Jesus' name, amen. 1 John 3, starting in the fourth verse. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appears that he might take away our sins, and in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. He who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin, because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning, because he has been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God, nor is anyone who does not love his brother. There are things which are true, whether we accept them to be true or not. One of the things that is a great error in our modern way of thinking, perhaps in the the new age way of thinking, is that my truth is my truth, and whether I believe something or true or not is what determines it to be true. But this is not true. Something is true or false regardless of what we think about it. We might use God as a few examples. God is God whether we believe He is God or not. God is because He is. God is not dependent upon us for His being. We neither add anything to God by believing in Him, nor do we take anything away from Him by rejecting Him. Whether we believe in Him or do not believe in Him is of no difference to the fact that He is. As He tells Moses, I am who I am. God is. We might think of other ways in which the truth is true, whether we believe it or not. We might say very simply that it's wrong to kill babies, whether I can justify it legally or not. A man is a man, even if he might choose to identify himself as a woman. It is wrong to take advantage of the poor, even if I can find some way to justify it in my conscience. Covetousness is always wrong, even if we might identify it as some sort of a political philosophy, or other less moral things are the case, even though people for quite some time believe generally the world to be flat, the world is round. 
Whatever we believe about the shape of the world has no difference, has no effect on what it actually is. Truth is true whether we believe it or not. And, and this is one of the big ideas, one of the big themes in John's letter to his churches is that there is truth and there is error. John sees things in black and white, or maybe we might use his own language. He sees things in light and in darkness. There is light and there is darkness. There is good and there is evil. There is right and there is wrong. There is truth and there is error. There are children of God and there are children of the devil. So that brings us in to one of these very simple statements of John. We come here into verse 4. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. There's not really a whole lot of nuance to that, is there? Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. Now, as, as modern evangelicals, we often have kind of a, a queasy relationship with the word law. And we have a queasy relationship because it, it doesn't sound, we don't, we don't like the idea of law. That sounds legalistic, right? Legal has to do with law. And so we have this, this uncertain relationship. And, and as evangelicals, modern evangelicals, we hear the word law and oftentimes we're very quick to go running to Galatians and say, no, the law is dead. I have been set free from the law, and that is true in the way that Paul meant it. We have been set free from the law as a means of trying to justify ourselves and make ourselves right with God. We have been set free from the law insofar as we don't have to refrain from pork or keep our hair short or, or this or that or whatever the law may require. But we are not free from the law insofar as it reflects God's character. The moral portion of the law, the heart of the law, still stands because God's character is the same. It is still wrong to worship idols because God is still the maker of the heavens and the earth. It is still wrong to blaspheme God because God is still holy. It is still wrong to dishonor your parents because God is still the one who sets authority over a person. It is still wrong to murder because God is still the living God who gives life. It is still wrong to commit adultery because God is still perfectly faithful. It is still wrong to steal because God is the giver of all good things. It is still wrong to lie because God is truth. It is still wrong to covet because God is the provider and he is still worthy of our trust. God's character has not changed, and the law is based in God's character. And here John says, whoever breaks the law is a lawbreaker, is a sinner. One of the very simple truths about the Scriptures that one really needs to understand and own if we are to understand the Scriptures really with any depth at all, is that sin always leads to death. The wages of sin is death. And so here, when John says very plainly, everyone who sins breaks the law, we see that there is death looming in the background. That doesn't make us feel very nice. We don't like to read things like verse 4. Especially perhaps this time of year, it's the holiday season, right? And we're drawing very near to the Christmas season. Perhaps some of you have your Christmas lights up already. Uh, 
Some people really have a problem with Christmas lights before, before Thanksgiving. I don't really care, to each their own. But maybe you have your Christmas lights up already, and we look forward to presents and trees, and we look forward to singing Christmas carols and, and hearing Christmas songs, and they tell me, I, I don't watch the Hallmark Channel, but they tell me that the Hallmark Channel runs Christmas movies 24-7 during the Christmas season. And when you, look at the, when you look at the Christmas movies or you hear the Christmas songs, at least the ones that we don't sing in church, you'll realize and you'll, you'll recognize a very familiar character, that is Santa Claus. And if we know anything about Santa Claus, we know that Santa Claus has two lists, a naughty list and a nice list. Santa's a very bad theologian, because apart from Christ, there should be only one list, the naughty list. Cal- uh, rather, Santa is not a Calvinist, I suppose that's his loss. Amen, right? But it's true. Everyone who breaks the law is a sinner, and everyone breaks the law. Apart from Christ, everyone continues to break the law. Remember this from Romans 3. Paul says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And in Romans 1, Paul describes the natural state of all persons. The natural state of life apart from Christ. I want to read that at length. I want to read a portion of Romans 1 at length because I, I want it first perhaps to rip the callus off our hearts. I think we become numb a little bit to the prevalence and the seriousness of sin. But then I also want us to read Romans 1 at length because seeing the, the darkness of our sin will allow us to appreciate the light of God's grace as we move into verses 5 and following more clearly. So, from Romans 1, verses 18 to 30. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served, created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they they do what ought not to be done. 
They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. That is quite the indictment of humanity, isn't it? But John doesn't write just to ordinary, every day, in the flesh, apart from Christ's people. John writes to a church, to the church. And he writes to people who are in Christ. And being in Christ changes everything, which is why he goes on then into verse 5. He says, but you know, but you know that he appears that he might take away our sins, and in him is no sin. Here we have hope, and hope is a glorious thing. Verse 4 is true of all of us. Romans 1 is true of all of us, except that we are now in Christ. And being in Christ changes everything because Christ has appeared, and He has appeared to take away sin. And we don't have to go back to Luke 2 to see Christmas. You can come right here into 1 John 3, verse 5, and you can see Christmas. He appeared. That means that Jesus appeared. God appeared, took to himself a human nature, and did so to take away sin. But not just to take away sin. Specifically, John says, to take away our sin. But how does he do that? How does one man, how does one man come and take away the sin of millions upon millions and hopefully millions upon millions more of greedy, God-hating, insolent, arrogant, boastful sinners? How does one man come and accomplish that? Well, John gives just a snippet, a part of the answer. He says, and in him is no sin. That is that Christ is perfect. And as he is perfect, he is able to be a perfect substitute for us. And he doesn't do a deep dive into the worth of Christ. He doesn't do a deep dive into exactly how this all works. He doesn't have to. He's already told them about this before. They know his teaching. He's been their pastor or their bishop in the past. But here he just reminds us that as we are sinners, Christ is not. And because he is not, he is able to be the Savior of all those whom God will call. He is able to be the Savior of all the elect. But now John dives into another distinction that he will draw between those who belong to God and those who do not in verse 6. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Remember, if you've been with us so far, and if you haven't, that's fine, welcome in. If you've been with us so far, remember that John writes to a church or to a group of churches who have recently been traumatized. And they've recently been traumatized by a church split. Now, this is not a church split over something stupid like carpet colors or whether to use a screen or not. This is a church split over the gospel. 
People have left John's churches saying that Jesus hasn't come in the flesh, saying that he's not enough for salvation, and saying, in fact, that you have to have extra knowledge. You see the word know. The word know appears many times in John's letter. He wants them to know. He wants his churches to know that they know the real Jesus. And so these false believers have left behind thinking that what matters is what you know. And because what you know is what matters, what you do with your bodies does not really matter at all. And so they have gone on continuing in sin. They have made a habit of sinning. And John says, no, the one who knows God does not continue sinning. John has given three tests. He gives his, he gives his readers, his beloved churches, three tests to know who is a true Christian. There's the doctrinal test, there's the moral test, and there's the social test. And here he comes back to the second. He comes back to the moral test. One who continues sinning does not belong to God. Now, this continues sinning is not just continues committing individual sins. Continues sinning means habitually makes a lifestyle of sin lives a life which is not transformed by the power of God's grace. We might, we might say that he, he has in mind people who continue sinning, people who have kind of built a house in Sinville with no desire to relocate to the city of God. And those who do that do not belong to Christ. You know, you can learn an awful lot about your heart by looking at your hands. We can learn about what we love by watching how we live. How we live says a lot about us. Jesus uses a metaphor of a tree. Go back to Matthew 7. He says, A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus by their fruit you will recognize them. Thus by their fruit you will recognize them. You know, sometimes I think it's important for us to look at ourselves before we look out, outward. What does my heart look like? What do my hands tell me about my heart? What does my life tell me about what I love? Those are good questions, but we should recognize as well that John writes this to a church, and he means for it to be applied to others. And the same is true of when Jesus writes in Matthew 7. He says, thus you will know them by their fruits. So when you, when you look around the landscape, perhaps just choosing uh, our own nation, when you look around the landscape of the church, what do you see? What do you see among those who claim Christ? Well, Praise the Lord, we see many, 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 many churches, thousands of churches that confess Christ, preach Christ, and live Christ. We have a lot of brothers and sisters in the Lord in this country, and we should be thankful for every last gospel-preaching church. But when you look around, you also see a lot of churches that, that claim Christ, but don't preach the real Christ, and certainly don't live in a way that honors Christ. We see churches, you go back to the very last part into Romans 1, verse 30, not only do they practice such things, but they encourage others to practice such things. 
And there are a lot of churches in our land that would claim Christ, but really are enemies of the cross because they preach acceptance of sin and the practice of sin. And how do we know who's the true church? How do we know who has the true Jesus? We know the same way that John's churches were told to know. We know based on who lives the truth and who preaches the holiness that God requires of us. We'll come back to that in just a bit as we come into verses 8 to 10, but we'll move now into verse 7. Verse 7 says, Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. He who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. John goes back to this address of affection, uses family language, dear children. John has been their pastor in the past. Perhaps he continues in some pastoral role for them. And they know that he loves them. They are dear to him. And remember that John is the best friend of Jesus. John is one whom Jesus loved. And so it should have brought them a great amount of comfort that they are loved by the one that Jesus loved. They are one degree of separation, we might say, from the personal love of Christ. He says, dear children, do not let anybody lead you astray. Do not let anybody lead you away from what I have taught you. Don't let anybody pull you away from the gospel, the message of truth. But whereas verse 6 put John's teaching in a negative way, Verse 7 puts it positively. Those who continue to sin do not belong to Christ. But verse 7, he says, he who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. The he is Christ, just as Jesus is righteous. Now again, John doesn't do a deep dive into how it is that we become righteous like Christ is righteous. If you look at your life, you, you see that you're not the same as you once were, praise the Lord, but you, but you look and you say, I still have sin. How can it be said of me that I am righteous as he is righteous? John is not speaking about a present righteousness which works itself in perfection in our own lives. He's speaking about a righteousness that God sees us with. That when we do what is right, we demonstrate ourselves to be united to Christ by faith. And in that faith, God sees us as though we had no sin, as if we had never sinned, or as the Heidelberg Catechism said, never sinned nor been a sinner. You see here, John is, is building up his church. He means here not to convict them, he means to encourage them, he means to settle their hearts. He wants them to look at their own hands and their own lives and see that their hearts are in the right spot, that they do love the real God, that they are members of the family of the real God. John wants them to find assurance in their lives, and that's where we should look for assurance. We don't look to ourselves for salvation, far from it. But we can look at ourselves after having been saved, and we can see fruits of the gospel, which should bring us 
assurance. The Westminster Confession of Faith very usefully says that we, we can see in ourselves an inward desire to walk according to an obedience, a, a good conscience, and that in observing our own good works, the works of our hands, that we can do what Peter says in Second Peter, we can make our calling and election sure. John wants that for his readers, for his people, for his saints, for his dear children. He wants them to look and see concrete evidences of the power of the gospel at work in their lives. And if God is at work in their life now, then we know that he always finishes the works that he has begun. And so they can look at their lives now and find comfort in that he will continue to love them all the way to the end. Then John kind of gets to the big picture as we move into verses 8, 9, and the first half of verse 10. The second half transfers us into the sermon, Lord willing, for next week. We'll read verses 8 and 9 in the first half of verse 10. He who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin, because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning, because he has been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God. Here we come into another one of these sharp dichotomies, these sort of black and white situations, in which John says that there are children of God and there are children of the devil. And he makes a very thinly veiled reference to Eden here. He uses the word in the beginning. You go back to the first chapter of this letter, that which was from the beginning. You go back to the very first chapter of John's gospel, in the beginning was the word. He's going back to the beginning and he's going back to Eden. He says the devil has been a sinner from the beginning. That is not to say that the devil was with God in the beginning, but the devil is a created creature. But already in Eden, we see the devil sinning and leading others into sin. And as he led Eve and Adam, who was with her, into sin, ever since then, there have been two kinds of people. There have been children of God, and there have been children of the serpent or of the devil. And this dynamic works itself out not way long time after Adam and Eve. It works itself out in their very first two sons. You have two sons, one a child of God, one a child of the devil, one righteous, one a murderer. You have Abel and you have Cain. Cain, the son of the devil, Abel, a son of God. Satan never creates anything. He is not a creator. He is a perverter. Nothing that exists, he made. He has no natural children. He has not created anybody. St. Augustine said it this way, The devil made no man, begat no man, created no man, but whoever so imitates the devil, that person, as if begotten of him, becomes a child of the devil by imitating him. Uh, Again, the devil never creates anything. He only perverts things. 
with the sin that he brought into the creation by tempting Eve and Adam brings a, a curse upon the very ground itself. Now there are thorns and now there are storms. But what does Jesus do? Jesus comes to destroy the work of the devil. Jesus comes to reverse the effects of the fall. Uh, stormy seas and thorns are account of sin, but what does Jesus do? He calms the seas and he wears the thorns to redeem his people. And the devil brings with him disease and sickness. What does Jesus do? He comes and he heals those who are diseased and sick. And this, the devil comes and he brings with him demons. What does Jesus do? He casts out the demons and he restores those to their right mind who had been possessed. And the devil brings death. And Jesus raises the dead. And is himself raised from the dead. And in his own resurrection, effects what will one day be a total destruction of the devil's work. Jesus comes to destroy the work of the devil. John Stott summarizes John's main point here. He says the devil is still busy doing his wicked works but he has been defeated. And in Christ, we can escape from his tyranny. John's readers should be encouraged by remaining in Christ, in body and soul. Jesus is destroying the work of the devil, even in their own lives. And I want us to be encouraged as well. Some of us have very tender consciences. That is a good thing. But it can become a bad thing if our tender conscience leads us into despair. We can look at our own lives, we can look at our hands, and we can see a mixture of what is right and of what is sinful. And for those of us with very tender consciences, we can look right past the things that are right and only at the things that are wrong, and we can despair. And we can say together with Paul, what a wretched man I am. But who can doubt that Paul knew Christ? And who can doubt that God loved Paul? And if Paul could save himself, I'm a wretched man, and yet be loved by God, certainly we can as well. So we should not despair. And that's what John did not want his church to do. He did not want them to despair. You know, as Reformed folk, we take sin seriously. And that's a good thing, because sin is seriously. But we are not, first and foremost, theologians of sin, because we do not define ourselves by the T in tulip. We do not define ourselves by total depravity. We are not theologians of sin. We are theologians of grace. We are not in Christ defined by the T. We are defined by the I. We are defined by irresistible grace. In Christ, we are no longer totally depraved. In Christ, we are righteous, and increasingly so, as God transforms us by the power of the Holy Spirit. John wants his church to see that. That there is a difference between them and those who had left. Paul wants us to see the same thing, says the same thing of us. You go to Ephesians 2, one of the clearest representations of the gospel. And he begins, like Paul does in Romans 1, he begins with this great condemnation of humanity, verses 
1 to 3, As for you, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. And the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work, and those who are disobedient, that's the devil. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh, and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. That, that has a lot of bad news in it. Following the devil, dead in sin, objects of wrath. That describes each of us before Christ. But not anymore. Do you see the words he uses? We were, but you were. We were dead in sins. We were objects of wrath, but no more. And that's what he goes on in verses 4 and 5. He says, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. We are a people of grace. We are not what we once were. You go back to verse 2 of 1 John chapter 3. Dear friends, now we are children of God. Formerly in the flesh, children of the devil, but by grace, children of God. And what we will one day be has not yet been made known. There is a time... And there is a day for focusing on the sin that remains. But that is not this day. This is a day for encouragement. There's a, a saying that I, I like, and I like to use. I think it sums up the Christian life quite nicely. It says, I am not yet what I want to be. But praise God, I am not what I once was. Let's pray. It's true, God, you have made us to be not what we once were. And so as John would have his church to be encouraged, we would have ourselves to be encouraged as well. To look at the works of our hands, mixed as they are, yes, but for today not to focus on the sin but to focus on the fruits of righteousness which you have worked in us. And it's true that we are not what we once were, but we have a love that did not exist before your grace. So God, bring us comfort. Perhaps we find ourselves in such a very strange time in need of more comfort than usual. So bring us this comfort that we are people of grace, in your eyes, seen as righteous, as he is righteous, and in him there is no sin, and so you see us as if we had never sinned nor been sinners. As we go forth from this place, we pray that you would send us out with a consciousness that we are saints, transformed saints, being transformed evermore into the image of Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.